you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. In the early 1940s, the city of Baltimore, Maryland, procured a section of land that had formerly belonged to the St. Stanislaus Cemetery in the southwestern section of the city. I'm not sure whether this required the exhumation and reinterment of bodies, or whether the land merely belonged to the cemetery but wasn't yet used. In either event, they began construction of a number of rental properties intended for low-income families. The housing projects known as O'Donnell Heights were completed by May of 1942, and families began moving in almost immediately. But by June of 1943, local industry began to ramp up production in support of the war effort, kicked into overdrive as it was everywhere else at that time. This Russian employment was only supplemented by the city's close proximity to important military facilities such as the Aberdeen Proving Ground, and the Edgewood Arsenal, as well as its importance in shipping. The steel industry was also a prominent one. And as a surge of new workers poured into the city, with many of them being fairly low in income, they began moving into O'Donnell Heights. After the conclusion of the war in 1945, most of these workers moved out, although quite a few stayed there. Also with the war's conclusion, Many returning veterans moved in to fill the vacancies left by the workers. By the following year, the development had returned to its original purpose, housing for those of low income. But conditions in the development of boxy, painted cinder block homes built on the cheap weren't good. On several occasions in 1946, parents kept their children home from school, protesting the lack of school buses. Although the city of Baltimore maintained that O'Donnell Heights didn't meet the criteria for mandatory busing of students, residents were angered at the fact that their children needed to walk nearly a mile and a half to school, along a muddy path that led past public toilets, through junkyards and heavy brush, and across railroad tracks, busy city streets, and a polluted creek. Schools were also becoming overcrowded in the district, not being sufficient for the number of children present. Eventually, Baltimore City relented, and two new schools opened in the neighborhood. Another matter that was less than ideal was the matter of that polluted creek. It had long been known that after the stream passed under O'Donnell Street on its journey south to empty into the Chesapeake, it became frightfully polluted. The Baltimore Sun spoke with residents of the surrounding neighborhoods in 1948, 
They said that since at least 1905, overflow from septic tanks routinely leaked into the waters of the creek, and combined with the nearly stagnant state of the water flow, this produced a foul-smelling stream which practically amounted to an open-air sewer. Area residents spoke of how they often needed to close their windows to keep the odor out. Over the summer, they said, a combination of the heat and the need to close windows created a truly terrible stink outside and horribly uncomfortable conditions inside. The summer of 1951 was a hot one, with temperatures near 90 degrees Fahrenheit or about 33 degrees Celsius. One can imagine the odor emanating from the filthy waterway, a disgusting, stinking miasma. And from that miasma coalesced a phantom, a mysterious humanoid form seen running around the neighborhood, hopping between roofs, seen but never captured. The story, or at least newspaper coverage of it, seemed to die down almost as soon as it had started. Many people were skeptical of its existence, including many of those quoted in the Baltimore Sun, and you'd reach the conclusion that the Phantom's existence was a joke. But to many of the people of O'Donnell Heights, he, she, or it was very real. For a period of a few weeks, people slept in groups if at all, some people too afraid of the roof-running ghost, some people too afraid of the roof-running ghost to ascend to the second floor of their home. The first encounter with the Phantom recounted in the press was that of William Buzzkirk who said that at about 1 a.m. on the morning of July 19th, he was walking along Travers Way, a thoroughfare bordering St. Stanislaus Cemetery. While there, he said, I saw him on a roof. He was a tall, thin man dressed all in black. It kind of looked like he had a cape around him. He jumped off the roof and we chased him down into the graveyard. For sightseers of a strange like myself who like to see where things happened, Travers Way no longer exists as such, but is merely a driveway at an apartment complex. But though Buzzkirk's was the first encounter recorded, it was likely not the first to take place. Agnes Martin, a Guzrian Street resident spoken to on July 24th, said that the Phantom had been appearing for two or three weeks, and thus well before Buzzkirk's supposed encounter. So as to the night of July 24th, when the story really seemed to take off, Officers were twice called. On the first occasion, at about 11.30 p.m., Officers Robert Clark and Edward Powell found nearly 200 people milling around the streets. Many gathered at the home of Agnes Martin at 12.11 Guzrian Street. A man named Charles Pittenger stood near a trash can with a shotgun in hand. The crowds milling about told police about the Phantom, and many maintained that they had seen it but the police themselves saw nothing out of the ordinary. They did arrest a 21-year-old military man stationed at Patuxent Naval Air Station, Marvin Fenka. Fenka was skulking about near St. Stanislaus Cemetery with a hammer. He was arrested and fined $5 by Magistrate Emil Malik. At around 1.30 a.m., Sergeant Emanuel Sadler and several other policemen answered another call to O'Donnell Heights, about a number of teenagers trespassing in the cemetery. They arrived, and residents directed them to St. Stanislaus Cemetery. But when they entered the cemetery, many of the kids fled. Five boys ended up being arrested and charged with disorderly conduct. When she was spoken to that night, 
Mrs. Melvin Hensler said that she hadn't slept properly in nearly a week. My husband is beginning to talk in his sleep, she said. He and the children are all sleeping on the floor up at his brother's house right now. He says his eyeballs ache from staying awake so long. Mrs. Hensler said she had an encounter, sort of, well, not really, with the Phantom on the morning of July 21st, when she came downstairs and discovered an empty potato sack lying on her ironing board. She assumed this to have been from the Phantom, forced to flee before it could ransack her home. She told reporters that she had seen the Phantom three times. He had a hunched back. Several neighborhood kids confirmed William Buzkirk's statement about the cemetery, with one saying that's where the Phantom lived. Another boy said that a few nights before, he had heard organ music emanating from a chapel within the cemetery grounds. Yet another told reporters that he had seen the Phantom leap over the six-foot-tall barbed-wire-topped fence surrounding the cemetery, and that it could leap to and from roofs with the greatest of ease even though none of the houses in O'Donnell Heights stood less than 20 feet high. Some of the annex attributed to the Phantom, like Mrs. Hensler's mystery potato sack, seemed not to fit with the general profile. Esther Martin, who was presumably a relative of Agnes, though I can't be sure, said she saw the Phantom lying on the ground underneath a car. Come here, little girl, it said, beckoning to her and acting more like Pennywise than Springheel Jack. It was said that it had broken into several houses. Randolph Jenkins said that he had seen the Phantom standing on top of the community center, the tallest building in the development. An investigation into suspected gambling and bookmaking centered on Thomas Bucheri, who operated a barber shop on the 6500 block of Holabird Avenue, just a few blocks south of St. Stanislaus. Police eventually arrested Bucheri and three other men, George Plummer, Herman Heisterhagen, and another man, Sergeant John Swicky. Another suspect in the case, Bucheri's landlady, Mildred Galeens, who lived on, Hol- on Holabird Avenue next to Bucheri's shop, heard a commotion at her door and ran from the house shouting that the Phantom of O'Donnell Heights was there. But it was only Sergeant Wade Poole, serving a warrant on her for her involvement in the conspiracy. George Cook, a neighbor of Agnes Martin, was skeptical of the Phantom's existence, and of its supposed 20-foot leaps, said, It's ridiculous to believe that a man can jump from that height and not leave a mark on the ground, yet this character does it all the time. Also a non-believer, Ruth Prophet said, The other night my son saw him at one place, at the same time another person was seeing him somewhere else. He couldn't be in both places at once. This skepticism was summed up in the final sentence of the Baltimore Sun's July 25th article on the Phantom. The question of the prowler of O'Donnell Heights, however, continued to be not one of Phantoms, but of real people reacting to, and possibly creating, the unknown with their imaginations. The next night, the Phantom was quiet, though Officer Elmer Powell once again arrested several boys who were trespassing in St. Stanislaus Cemetery and charged them with disorderly conduct. He said that six other boys had fled the scene when he arrived. Around 11 p.m., someone called to say they heard footsteps pounding on their roof. But no one saw the phantom. On July 26th, the loping ghoul of the rooftops, as he was called in the article, was seen on the roof of the Graceland Park O'Donnell Heights Elementary School. Officer Henry Roth, 
called to the scene, arrived to find the phantom still in the same spot. It proved to be a stationary ventilation pipe, and not a phantom at all. And at 6100 Plant View Avenue, the phantom was seen running across a rooftop and leaping down in the yard below, whereupon it vanished. But in the yard was a German shepherd known to be pretty mean. It was sleeping, undisturbed by anything. The owner of the house dismissed the story, saying, I ain't losing no sleep over this. By August 5th, the phantom seems to have moved on. Neighborhood resident Jerome Martin, Agnes's son, said, The only commotion we have around here now is just the usual fighting among the neighbors. You might say everything is normal again. And with that, the phantom of O'Donnell Heights vanished back into the ether. It seemed that no one, except for the residents of O'Donnell Heights, and seemingly only half of them, took these appearances too seriously. So what might it have been? First possibility would, of course, be a ghost. Part of the development was built on land formerly belonging to St. Stanislaus Cemetery, after all, and the cemetery was home to many who died before their time in the 1918 flu epidemic. But as said earlier, I'm not certain whether that parcel of land was even being actively used by the cemetery, or whether it merely belonged to them. And at any rate, the land had been acquired by the city some years before construction on the O'Donnell Heights houses was begun. Even accepting that the ghost began its appearances after the homes were inhabited, why didn't the appearances begin in 1943, when the first residents moved in, but wait eight years until 1951? And at any rate, if the ghost was that of a flu victim, why would it seemingly spend its time playing the organ and dashing around rooftops? The ghost possibility is the one that holds the least water for me. A second possibility is some sort of Springheel Jack-type entity. There are many instances of Springheel Jack-type appearances from the United States, and indeed, the Phantom of O'Donnell Heights is often cited as one of these. But this is a possibility that is rather difficult to discuss, if I'm honest. The boundaries between what would be considered a ghost and what would be considered a Springheel Jack are rather vague. He was certainly almost universally described as a ghost in his appearances in Victorian England, and many of the places where these creatures are said to appear do seem to have the types of histories where ghosts would tend to appear. And after all, many reports of such creatures, in my opinion, seem to have their inexplicable elements magnified and seem to be accounts of attacks by genuinely human miscreants. And then the third possibility, and the most likely upon consideration, is the possibility of some sort of hysteria possibly exacerbated by the rather disgusting conditions in the area. That summer was quite hot, even at night. There were few air conditioners in the neighborhood, and with the presence of the heavily polluted creek-slash-open sewer, residents would likely have kept their windows closed against the smell of sewage. Add what are likely quite a few sleepless nights due to the heat, and to this mix, add rumors of some sort of roof-running phantom. I'd think this is almost certainly a recipe for a type of hysteria. Other telltale signs of a phantom, which is as much of an urban legend as anything else, is the fact that there are few, if any, details associated with any of the encounters. This may be as much an artifact of the news coverage as of anything else, to be fair. Several of the named witnesses are related to one another as well. And no eyewitnesses ever seem to give any sort of description of its face. 
beyond vague mentions of its being horrible. The notion of a black-clad, caped phantom running and leaping about, a phantom with a nondescript but horrible face, brings to mind images of Lon Chaney's 1926 version of the Phantom of the Opera in the scenes in which the phantom, having just offed one of the actors, is making his escape across the catwalks and gantries above the stage. The story of its organ playing, as well, is of course reminiscent of one of the most iconic scenes from the same film. Whatever the Phantom of O'Donnell Heights may have been, it hasn't appeared since that two-week period in 1951. But over four decades before, in 1909, another man in black appeared on the other side of the Chesapeake, in Georgetown, Delaware. More than seven feet in height and swathed in a long black cloak, closely wrapped around its face, a new mystery has been exciting some parts of Georgetown, where it has followed women and young girls and jumped out from behind trees at them. The Devil in Black, as it is called, first appeared several nights ago, when a dozen or so persons saw it during the course of the evening. From behind a tree, it jumped at Mrs. William Curdy and sent her screaming with, with fright into a neighbor's house. While a daughter of Joseph Carnell also was chased by the mysterious stranger, until she fell almost fainting into Fred Rust's grocery store. The men of the neighborhood, informed of the affair, led by William Curdy, ran across fields, jumped fences, and through backyards, with the devil but a few yards ahead of them. But, while crossing the big ditch known as the Savannah, the figure completely disappeared and despite search could not be found. Again it was seen by several young girls, and last night it made its appearance and was seen closely by Mrs. Carn Josephs, who heard a noise as she passed her woodshed. She turned to look and distinctly saw the devil walk out of the shed and after her. Almost fainting with fear, she ran screaming into the house, while her husband ran into the yard with his gun and fired at the tall figure, which was plainly distinguished at the woodshed. In a second it was gone with no trace of injury from the gun. Many superstitious declare that bullets cannot hit it, but some of the more determined men declare that it is the work of a practical joker and expect to put a load of shot into it at the first opportunity. William Curdy was a county constable, was politically active, and was later charged with bribery of a witness. In November of 1910, he was attacked and knocked unconscious on the streets of Georgetown. I'm working on a book called The Sable Terror, most likely anyway, about such accounts of women in black, so-called cloak men, and spring jack types from the United States. Well, I've actually been working on it off and on for several years now, so who knows when it'll finally actually be done. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram, at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, till next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.